0: The package being delivered."
1: So another band of hackers struck again. A criminal gang known as Darkside unleashed a ransomware attack on the Colonial Pipeline, which shut down an integral line that supplies the East Coast with oil and gas.
0: A major energy provider is trying to completely restore its East Coast operations after a cyber attack derailed its fuel supply chain on Friday.
1: While the cyber attack itself didn't physically knock out the pipeline with a string of code, The resulting attack majorly disrupted a critical piece of U.S. infrastructure, the fuel supply. While the Biden administration is scrambling to deal with the fallout, questions surrounding DarkSide and its motivations persist. To chat more on that, Motherboard reporter Lorenzo Franceschi Piquerai is on the show. I'm Ben Maku, and this is Cyber. So I feel like every week we get on here and chit-chat, Lozo, more and more of these critical infrastructure attacks are becoming sort of the conversation point for the cybersecurity community. And obviously, when you start seeing something that has to do with hacking creep into the Twitter mentions, becomes like a hot topic, you either know it's, it's stupid, like it's the Sony hack, or it might actually be something for real. And this past week we had the ransomware attack on, a, on the Colonial Pipeline that halted 2.5 million barrels of oil or fuel shipments from being shipped out. And that, that was all from a cyber attack. So take me through this. What happened?
2: So what happened is that over the weekend, Colonial Pipeline, which is a giant uh, gas company in the US, which maintains one of the largest pipelines that move guests throughout the whole east coast announced that they had been hacked and that um out of precaution they were shutting down the whole pipeline and their whole essentially infrastructure network because the hack was on the it network so you can imagine stuff like you know their email servers their sort of internal communication servers but like most um you know, most like most infrastructure companies, there is a separation between the network that the company uses for email and the network that the company uses to control and monitor something like the actual pipeline. Uh, This is sort of like a standard procedure at this point. You know, infrastructure cybersecurity companies recommend this sort of setup. And, you know, it's impossible to say whether all infrastructure companies are doing it. I think, I suspect some are not, and they're still sort of, you know, working through this transition, but it's, you know, it's pretty well-established procedure that you don't want these two networks to touch each other because, you know, if something happens to the IT network, you know, through a phishing attack or or a ransomware attack or something like that, then you risk, you know, physical consequences that could even be, you know, we've talked about this a lot, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibilities that something like that could result in, you know, people being harmed, so in this case, I think it's important to note that the shutdown of the, the infrastructure network, for lack of a better word, you know, the shutdown of the actual pipeline was out of precaution from the company. Like, I really doubt that that was what the hackers wanted. Uh, you know, there's no evidence that that's what the hackers were looking for. And at the end of the day, the group behind it is uh, relatively well known for being sort of a run-of-the-mill ransomware gang, you know, they go after companies for their money. So my theory, and you know, it's, it's too early to tell, but my theory is that they didn't even realize, I mean, they knew what this company was probably, but I don't think that they really wanted the shutdown of the pipeline.
1: And yet, I mean, there's it kind of, it it happened, you know, so whether or not they wanted to or not, it, it, that's, that's what Mm -hmm. occurred. And I think that there's also, there's, there's been examples of this exact type of thing in the past targeting energy companies. I mean, you look at something like the Saudi Romco hack, it managed to shut down production, mm-hmm. right? And I think, I mean, that in and of itself, while it's not some sort of ICS system that was, that was sort of fucked with, it still, I mean, it's, they managed to, you know, get into the servers of this company and disrupt it to the point where they didn't know what they were doing and needed to shut this pipeline down. And it's, and it's still happening,
2: yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's it's a fair point that you know it doesn't matter what their intention was. At the end of the day, the result is what matters, and what and it's what is causing people to freak out. So yeah, you know, I mean, this is huge because because it's gas, because it's you know it's messing with uh, everyday people's lives, right? If there's a shortage of gas, it affects commerce, it affects people commuting. So it, it's a in a way, it makes sense that this attack has really captured the the attention of everyone from, you know, media uh, outside of the cybersecurity specialized media. So, you know, it's it's on CNN, it's on Washington Post, whatever. And it's really crossing the boundaries into mainstream coverage. And, and, you know, everyone probably like, you know, average people, they usually don't pay attention to cybersecurity news are aware of this because they're worried about their gas. So, yeah, it's a huge attack, obviously.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it is funny to watch some of the people discuss this. They're like, "Oh, it's it's the nerd attacks again." I mean, it, which is ridiculous. I can't believe we're still talking that way about this stuff. But uh, you know, this also kind of joins the tradition of ransomware attacks that have happened over the last few years that have affected people day to day, right? Like, if we want to look at something like WannaCry, mm-hmm. that that affected people again, not necessarily an attack directly on. You know, it's not Stuxnet blowing up of a nuclear reactor, but it took over you know hospitals and servers in you know critical critical services for people. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the one thing too I think to, to to bear in mind is just how this is becoming more commonplace. I mean, I read today that the White House is dealing with this, right? This is this is top of mind for the president.
2: Yeah, I think there's a uh, two elements here. One is that yes, this is becoming too you know very common you know just today i was writing about a different ransomware incident against the uh washington dc metropolitan police department so you know that's completely different and it's just you know a couple of days l- later after the colonial pipeline one so you know there's ransomware attacks every day uh, most of them at this point just because they're so common they don't even really register too much in mainstream media outside of cybersecurity circles, but this one obviously does. And it's fair because, you know, it is um, affecting like a very critical service and a critical, well, a critical pipeline. Um, So, so yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, DC is taking notes and, you know, we have to say though, that the discourse has already spiraled out of control. Uh, Newt Gingrich has called it an act of war against America and he has said that <laughs> Biden yeah and he has said that Biden should be authorized to like order the killings of anyone overseas who's responsible for this. You know, I don't know. I was really I was even like debating whether to mention this, but because it's just so ridiculous. But I think this, you know, this ridiculous discourse does underline the fact that, you know, DC and the, you know, the political Establishment, uh, for lack of a better word, you know the, you know Congress and White House, they are taking notes. They are worried about this, and I think they're gonna they're gonna look into whether this group, which appears to be just another run of the mill ransomware group, may actually be something else.
1: Well, that that's the thing. I mean, so. You know you and I have actually done a lot of reporting on on some of these types of groups, these criminal these criminal hacking groups in what many uh, pundits and journalists describe as Eastern Europe, which is just a lot of people, some weird coded way of like looking down on on, on countries that uh, used to be part of the Soviet Union or were adjacent to it. but really it's you know it's it's hacking groups in places like Ukraine, uh, Russia, even Belarus now. Look, I think that there's a bit of a blind spot for people in the US and, you know, Canada, where I'm originally from, that think that anything hacking or anything really that happens in Russia or Ukraine or any of these types of countries, you know, happens with, it because there's these, they're seen as these sort of oppressive states with powerful police and intelligence bodies, everything has to be sort of tacitly approved by the government. But I would say that, you know, there's, it is the case that some of those criminal Groups are like that and operate with, you know, with some sort of FSB, which is a Russian intelligence handler telling them what to do or getting them to do things in order for them to stay out of jail. But there's also a lot of these types of hacking groups that just go out and straight up just hack stuff for money. You know, mm-hmm. the, some of the, for the longest time, some of the biggest carding enterprises in the entire world were from Russia and Ukraine. And I can tell you, Putin had no interest in, in uh, Americans getting their visas scammed. Mm-hmm. So. You know this group in particular. I mean, is there any evidence? To, first of all, what's the, what are they called, and is there any evidence to suggest that they actually are, you know, in the employ of a, of an intelligence group or actually have any connection to geopolitics?
2: So far, there isn't, and I think uh, I think you made a very good point that there's a, you know there's a difference between uh, the Russian government um, sort of gently steering, you know, the mouse and keyboards uh, of, uh, of 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 uh, hacking groups and the Russian government ordering, you know, like using fronts. You know, we've seen both. And I think that it's also possible, and I think it's happened, that uh, ha- a hacking group that started as a purely criminal alt- enterprise with no connection to the government then became an instrument of the government. You know, you can imagine that maybe they got very successful, and then the government comes in and says, hey, we need you to do something. So, you know, all these possibilities are on the table for this group, which is known as Dark Side. And I think it's just too early to tell. Um, Something that's very interesting here is that the group itself has come out, you know, after there was some speculation in the media that this was a, you know, a group linked to the, directly linked to the Russian government, they've come out and released a pretty, almost like a very funny statement, like they've said that they're apolitical, they do not participate in geopolitics, and they basically ask people to n- not tie them with a certain government, you know, they didn't mention Russia, but that was the implication. And, and this, you know, in, in a way, in my eyes, this denial makes me think that maybe there is something else, you know, I don't, you know, again, I really don't know. I think most people don't know, especially, you know, politicians like Newt Gingrich. Um, they just don't know. I think, you know, there's I think also the context that we have to that we have to keep in mind is that there's a lot of tension between Russia and the US now, especially on the cybersecurity front, you know, with the solar winds hack from last year, uh, with the US taking yet, you know, so far unknown and unspecified um counterattacks. So again, we really don't know and I think every option is on the table though. You know, I don't want to I don't want to make it sound like it's ridiculous to think that this group is connected to Russian government. I think we just don't know yet.
1: I think we just don't know yet. I mean, look, like like I said, there has been cases in the past where this has been true. I mean, there certainly was a lot of talk and some evidence to suggest that there were you know criminal russian hackers working for uh the fsb and the gru when it came to the dnc mm-hmm. hack whether it was providing them with certain types of exploits or or what what have you and there there has been in fact uh for example the case of bogachev mm-hmm. who is this you know very famous russian hacker who was absolutely being like shielded in suchy by the fsb and the and the russian government at one mm-hmm. at one point at least that was the that was the talk and you know that this individual actually was attacking certain certain targets for for the Russian government, especially you know in in, in sort of the, the the aughts where while the Russian government was just catching up a little bit on some of its its cyber capabilities. So I mean that it certainly exists this connection between the the criminal hacking enterprises of that part of the world and and governments that are there, but. I think if you're like Newt Gingrich and just being like, let's just start giving SEAL team six complete reign to go and like double tap people in the streets of Minsk. I think that might be a little uh, you know. Although I I'm sure if I'm sure if Newt had it his way, he'd probably just be launching nukes. But yeah, I mean, I think uh, it, it's, it's probably
2: being <laughs> honest, right? It's it's a ridiculous comment, yeah. but I don't think he's being facetious. And and I think them talking about um Bogachev is a really good Good point, because that is sort of the go to example of a you know a person a criminal that we still we probably still don't know exactly when it turned right? Maybe he started just as a as a guy that wanted to make some money and because he got so he got so successful mm-hmm. and and started having access to so many interesting networks, then the Russian government was like, "Hey, wait a second, you know how about you start working for us? You know you keep making money, but you also start working for us." And that's the FBI's uh, current stance on Bogachev. You know, they've come out publicly. Uh, they put like a, you know, a red notice, uh, Interpol red notice, uh, most wanted poster and everything. And their accusation is that he was working for the FSB. So, you know, again, this is not outside of the realm of possibility. We've seen it with Bogachev. We've seen it with NotPetya, where the I think it was the GRU at the time, uh, another intelligence service in Russia, was pretending to be some sort of weird... You know, some sort of ransomware or like hacking group that had nothing to do with the government, but no one even believed it at the time, and it has since. You know, intelligence agencies in the West, in the Five Eyes, etc., have come out publicly saying that they this was the Russian government. So yeah, it's possible that this was the Russian government. I think will it's going to be very interesting to see uh, what else the. I think I think the pressure on the U.S. government is so high that they will have to say either way. You know, it may take a few weeks, it may take a few months, but I I expect someone, whether the FBI, the NSA, or the White House, to eventually come out and say, okay, we can attribute this attack to, you know, X agency or X hacking group. I mean, it's interesting that the FBI has already come out with a statement publicly saying that this was uh, the dark side hacking group, which is very quick attribution. Uh, very unusual for the FBI to come out so quickly.
1: Very quick attribution. Very quick.
2: Yeah, I mean, it took literally a couple of days, and 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 this was after the Washington Post had already reported it. So so it's possible that the FBI was like, okay, it's already in the news. Let's just confirm it. Let's move on, so that people don't start, you know, speculating.
1: Although you know, I I, I do remember when the the Sony hack happened, and I think it was like basically a month. A month and a bit later, the NSA came out and gave full attribution, saying it was North Korea.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It didn't take that long. I mean, it didn't take a a long time. Uh, I think. Yeah. You're probably right. It was a month or two. Yeah. Because the hack was uh, right before Christmas. And I think by January or February, that already came out. But I wonder if that was actually a lesson for the US government. Like, I wonder if they regret uh, taking that long to come out because. You know, I remember there was there were a lot of skeptics in the cybersecurity industry. There were a lot of skeptics even in the media. I mean, myself, (laughs) I wrote a few stories saying, "Are we really sure this is North Korea?" Yeah, which where where is the evidence? Which
1: I, by the way, I was on the record being one of the people that was like, "Yeah, it was them."
2: Yeah, I mean, it seemed you know, as it seemed such a ridiculous attack for North Korea to take. But you know, it's North Korea in a way; it's such a ridiculous country, right? Like they, they don't really think like we do. So so I do wonder if, you know, learning from that experience of coming out so late in attributing to North Korea, because you know, the silence from the US government really contributed to the conspiracy theory that it was not North Korea. So I think in this case the FBI was like, Okay, we're really we we already know it's dark side. Let's just come out that saying that it's dark side and then let's figure out whether they have a connection with Russia. So that you know, at least we we put out some some attribution.
1: Well, we'll see what happens. Um, it's certainly a very interesting hack. And it's always interesting to see hacking news break into the mainstream. Um, and I we're going to have to keep an eye on this, Mr. Mister Lorenzo.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the next few days will be interesting. And I think something that we haven't touched too much because it's not really, you know, it's tangential to the cybersecurity angle is that what's interesting is that it's starting to come out that the shortage of gas at least at this point, you know when we're recording this this podcast is almost more, is caused almost more by people freaking out and like stocking up on it than than the pipeline actually being shut down and I mean let's be clear, like the pipeline being shut down is definitely causing a shortage, but people freaking out and buying gas and putting it in like you know we saw people putting it in like plastic bags <laughs> that's making it worse, <laughs> yep. Uh, but yeah, you know, again, I'm really the, I don't want to underestimate this attack, um, the consequences of this attack. And yeah, I think the next few days and weeks will be interesting.
1: Absolutely. Well, I will catch you later, sir.
2: Talk to you soon, Ben. Thank you.
1: Hello, Jason. We're back.
3: Ben, Ben, there you are. Good to see you. <laughs> You're good back. Good to, to hear the, you.
1: Good to hear you. You're back for the cipher. You took over the show last week. Very much appreciated. It was a it was a heist. I stole it. I stole it, it from was, you. It was a major heist with Mr. Galt, who will definitely be on this show more. Now, okay, first one in. This is uh, this story. Kind of, I gotta say, like, hit me because. My back has been completely fucked from this pandemic. Like, I actually think like I've aged six years. My back cracks now. I don't like it. Um, have
3: Have you tried hanging? You got to try hanging.
1: I do. I hang when I do chin-ups and stuff like that. I, it really helps. But like- That helps, yeah. Uh, I just so think the, 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 general, the generalness of this pandemic has ruined me, but also the personal computer has also ruined me.
3: Yeah. The story is how the personal computer broke the human body. It's a lovely feature by Lane Nooney and it's just about how uh desk work and computers have uh broken our backs and our eyes and our wrists and our hands uh and how we have a lot of zoom fatigue from you know being on all the time on uh on call, like work calls and that is emotionally draining but uh really like office work and and sitting at a computer and, and like It's just not good for your body. And so our bodies are literally breaking down as well. And how uh, our thinking on that has changed over the decades.
1: Yes. And I mean, I we always forget that human beings, we evolve to forge in the woods, not to sit down and type in like windowless rooms like vampires.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it's like... (laughs) I don't know about you and like people have tried a lot of different things, obviously like standing desks, treadmill desks, like different mouse pads and things like this. I find that personally it's like none of it really works for me. Like I almost just like I'll do this for 20 years and then I'll have arthritis and a bunch of other things. It's like I just none of it works for me. It's just like I sit in a chair that's not that good on a desk that's not that good With keyboard that's not that good and like hurt my eyes and my body all day every day and it's not like we're mining coal here at the same time it's like it it adds up I'm sure and I'm sure it's doing damage and it's I I just don't know another way it's like when I try the ergonomic things I feel like I I feel like none of them really help me and so I mean uh this piece is a lot more scientific than just any one person's personal experience but It's like we really like in the 70s and 80s and and now through today are just like doing a mass experiment on what it means to uh, fundamentally change like how people work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like I I, I feel the same way as you. I don't think there's any escaping it. The only thing I could do is like do physical activity every day to try to offset it in some way. And even then, who knows if it's going to work? Like who knows if that's even going to work?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's been ages and ages of studies on this and it's like, we haven't done enough studies overall, but there are many studies that say, yeah, yeah, this is like bad for your body. Uh, however, I saw one TikTok from a chiropractor who said that actually our bodies are resilient and will be fine. And I'm like hanging on to that TikTok uh, and just hoping that it's yeah. like our, our bodies well. are resilient and it will be fine. Although I think that uh, I think that's probably not the case.
1: Yeah, just judging from my own my own experiences, I don't I don't know. I think we're fucked, but anyway.
3: And I think yeah, just like one more point on that, it's like during the pandemic, it's like lots of people are just like working from bed or like their couches or just like yeah. in all sorts of weird setups. So I mean, I I do think probably during the pandemic it's gotten worse just in terms of like people aren't even at their offices. Like I think at our office we probably have quite expensive chairs. Like chairs are expensive as
1: hell. Um I went and like, stole one though, personally. I went to I personally went to the vice offices and stole a office chair around the time the pandemic broke in New York because that was a, that was a professional move on my part, personally. I remember we saying. had to
3: get you special permission to go do it. Yeah. So I mean it's the wrong word, but yes.
1: <laughs> my my back was fucked. Yeah, it's like I'm sitting
3: in a plastic chair right now, but like you're I don't insane. Know, I'm probably fine. Who knows? I'm sitting in this
1: this vice luxury. Yeah. Um okay, next story. After I admitted to a crime that didn't really happen. They gave it to me, guys, don't worry. Uh the Washington D This is kind of a string of hacks of police departments. Am I right here? Like I feel like this is continuing to happen, but uh, Yeah, I mean
3: there there's a lot of there uh, there's a lot of ransomware going around right now and it's a bunch of different gangs. Um yeah. This one is called the Babuk gang. And uh, there have been a couple high-profile hacks of police uh, police departments. There was obviously Blue Leaks last year, which was like yep. a really big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this one was a hack of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department, which is just like D.C. city police. Um, and it's, ra- it's like classic ransomware, like Babuk ransomware group uh, locked their shit, stole their stuff, and demanded a ransom. And what's interesting about this is uh, often I feel like often these things play out, and like a lot of stuff doesn't end up actually getting leaked, or they like come to some sort of agreement. But in this case, uh, we got the chats of between the hackers and the cops, and learned that uh, babak wanted four million dollars, and the police offered 100K. a hundred k. Obviously, huge gulf there, and. Hacker said no, and then they leaked like highly sensitive background check information for a lot yeah, of Yeah, it was,
1: it was pretty intense stuff, to be honest with you. Like it DOBs, like, uh, pol- it personal was also
3: addresses, like psychological evaluations, like polygraph reports, like yeah, yep, work history type stuff. It was pretty bad, and um, I don't know, it's like it's not good at the same time it's like i know you just spent most of the podcast talking about the pipeline hack and it's like that was another ransomware group and we've also seen a lot of city and state governments also get hit with uh ransomware and kind of be brought to their knees and it's yeah like, i mean they're ra-
1: they're in vogue right now they're yeah, in vogue it,
3: it's definitely nothing new at the same time it does mm-hmm. feel like the targets have gotten kind of uh like high profile and the the like knock-on effects are pretty bad. <laughs> like
1: yep, yep, yeah. big time. And we got our final one. Little discussion of Babel.
3: Yeah, we're doing we're doing a quick one this week. Um, so Babel is an, a free and open source project, uh, a JavaScript project, I believe that uh, does something or other. I'm not a coder, um, but it, like many free and open source um, programs, it's used by Tons of big companies like as the underlying code to do a bunch of other stuff. Uh, this is obviously non-technical, but the the takeaway is basically like it's a it's an open source program that big companies then leverage to build products that are like wildly profitable, uh, but very few of them actually pay Babel for any of the underlying code. And for years, the code was maintained by volunteers, like so many other open source projects. And uh, in 2018, Babel decided to try a radical experiment, which was they tried to pay a couple of their developers. Um, they were paying one of them like 120K a year, which is, you know, a lot of money at the same time for a coder who's maintaining a project that's used by millions of companies, like millions of users at thousands of companies. Uh, that's like not very much money considering that a lot of these people, a lot of these companies are worth billions and billions and sometimes trillions of dollars. So they're paying this guy and they are paying a couple of other people to do some part-time work. And they basically just like quickly ran out of money. It was like, there were no, not enough donations to sustain it. Um, they weren't getting enough, um, corporate sponsorships and basically like Babel is now in a place where they have no money left and it's important this is important not because uh you know this individual company is like that important or this individual project is that important although it is pretty important um but because it speaks to the larger business model of just like using free and open source software projects by these big companies and sort of what it means to use free labor to make a ton of money and not really like give anything back to these communities?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of like, it just feels like in the last like few years, so many open source projects that we've seen that were sort of this, you know, the 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 brainchilds of like the that early hacking community where it was all about, you know, putting technology out there for people to utilize, et cetera, has either been sort of co-opted by Silicon Valley or co-opted in some other way where f- for some for-profit reason and it never ends up being really all that fair
3: (laughs) yeah and it's a big topic of conversation like uh you know in this world and at the same time like very few people seem to actually be doing anything about it i think it was kind of telling after this uh this blog post where they were like hey like we're kind of fucked like Babel claims they have 117 million downloads every month so i mean like that that scale is outrageous. It's really big. Um, they're like, Hey, you know, we're, we're really struggling. And the response was kind of like from the creator of Babel, who has since left the project was basically like, well, you guys mismanaged this because the guy who you were paying didn't do a lot of commits to the, uh, the actual project, like the guy you were paying wasn't that valuable. And if he were more valuable then." Uh, you wouldn't be in this situation, and I think that that is not really the the best way of looking at this because it's like I don't know. Facebook surely pays a bunch of people to do basically nothing. It's like, yep, not not everyone at every company is going to be like an all star, super productive at all times. And it's like, if you're a smaller company, yes, or a nonprofit. In this case, it's like you need to make sure that your employees are productive at the same time. It's like, I don't know, workplace productivity is basically the subject of every single company's like, like endless meetings, like ways of tracking this stuff, ways of evaluating it. What do you do when someone is not productive, things like this. And so it's like, in this case, like this, uh, the former creator who is now on the outside was like, well, this guy wasn't doing a lot of work on the actual code. And then Babel kind of said like, well, we were sending him to conferences and, and trying to get him to raise money. And there's a lot of ways that a person can be valuable. And so it's just like, it's become a, a weird conversation, I think, but it's also an important one. And it's also something that it's like, we need to figure out how to make free and open source software sustainable for the people who are working on it. Because the current model is like, people put in hundreds or thousands of hours of their time for free, and then big companies monetize those projects and give nothing back. And like, that's not good.
1: Nope. Nope. It's almost like that thing that happened, like what, 10 years ago or so, where we all thought Silicon Valley was going to solve our problems through the, the lushness and, uh, and uh, innovation of technology ended up being uh, not true.
3: Yeah, that's that sounds about right. <laughs> um, ben, it's always a pleasure.
1: <laughs> it's always a pleasure, Mr. Kevlar. I will catch you again soon.
3: All right, farewell.
0: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well...